You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Any here for Solidarity Breakfast? Beautiful day outside. Uh, of course, today is uh, one of the days of National Action for Climate, uh, November the 6th. And of course, in Melbourne, there's going to be a, a major rally on the steps of uh, the State Library, and uh, that's at one o'clock. An increasingly desperate-looking Morrison uh, has returned from overseas, and he was seen yesterday. uh, He was on on air yesterday, uh, flanked by the new Premier of New South Wales. They were both doing an impersonation of rabbits in the headlights. They were screaming about jobs and, and what a good job they're doing in the environment space. Uh, the international community at COP26 would appear to differ in the opinion about uh, Morrison's performance. He was uh, given quite a uh, drubbing to the point where uh, it rippled in our media, which is uh, pretty amazing considering the amount of work the Federal National Liberal Party has been going uh, out of its way to crush any dissent, including using legislation and uh, the old Trump uh, method of pretending that nothing's really happening. On the uh, Victorian stage, of course, it was even more uh, extraordinary uh, Liberal Party performance from one of its members, Tim Smith, who uh, uh, got drunk and uh, didn't just drunk uh, drink drive, uh, but uh, um, drove into someone's house, <laughs> crashed his car. So he, he quite clearly doesn't do anything by halves. Apparently, uh, he's the uh, person who um, is quite often used to, to uh, give a political political kicking, uh, doesn't have uh, many um, uh, reservations about uh, putting other people in difficulty uh, and uh, he's uh, less used to being given a um, public kicking himself. Uh, despite uh, Matthew Guy's um, call for him to resign and uh, not to take pre-selection for the next election, uh, he he is actually apparently supported by uh, members of the uh, federal Liberal Party, including the Treasurer, best mates. Anyway, we'll see what happens there. Uh, more important things, 2pm uh, tomorrow... Uh, the refugee rights gathering is going to continue outside the Park Hotel, Lincoln Square, Carlton, in support of the refugees caught in the COVID prison by federal government decree. Uh, it still goes on and the pressure is continue to, continuing to be applied. 
Um, there's lots of things going on and uh, uh, <clears throat> perhaps this is the beginning of the weakening of the grip of the more terrible elements of our political uh, elite at the moment um, as we fight back against uh, a much more serious issue, which is uh, a serious issue for everybody, um, uh, the destruction of our environment. Um, there was a very interesting uh, film that's just come out called The Eternals and um, it's fascinating because it's one of the uh, Marvel series and uh, there's a bit, there will be a lot of people out there who just are sort of a little bit over superheroes and etc, etc. If you have been a, cop, a comic reader... Um, that whole 80s, uh, you know, uh, that whole use of comics as a, um, uh, a kind of a um, ex- inspection of the Western cultural zeitgeist uh, over decades is quite a fascinating way of looking at the whole uh, uh, aspect. Um, and The Eternals is fascinating because it... Uh, uh, is on a much grander scale and uh, it definitely has this underlying message of a thing that came out in a, con- a, a speech at the Echo Socialism Conference uh, when Kavita Kishna from uh, Kurdistan was talking about their extraordinary uh, efforts to combat the reach of capitalism so that we could have a more fair and just and uh, uh, environmentally um, safer um, response as human beings. And her conversation, she said, they reached a point where they were going to kill the male. And the reason why I was reminded of this uh, uh, word, this uh, necessity was that in, in this mainstream um, American a big money film, The Eternals, uh, it, it moves the whole conversation around the removal of uh, male um, aggressiveness and warlikeness to a mu- the much more complicated female-centred protagonists. And it was just, I thought, oh, um, the revolutionaries from Kurdistan are uh, uh, fighting capitalism uh, at the steps of the destruction of uh, climate and uh, an example of Hollywood joining uh, behind as uh, the uh, Greek chorus. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Venezuela, the upcoming Venezuelan election. We're going to uh, find out about the groundbreaking announcement coming out of the Fair Work Commission that there may be a fairer payment system for agricultural workers, a long time coming. And we're going to talk to Don uh, Sutherland later in the program about putting workers in the centre of Just Transition. But first up, a few announcements and a little bit of inspirational music. This 
lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's gonna be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and that was uh, Laura Jean uh, <laughs> uh, reflecting on November. I always come back on um, on air and listen to some of the music uh, that I choose and uh, uh, get sh- shocked at uh, how um, an irreligious person like me should suddenly find that right in the centre there that someone has let Jesus into their heart. But never mind, I was actually listening to the... Uh, 
uh, gentle, soft, uh, dulcet tones, which uh, uh, pleased me. And also the shortness of the song, perfect for a program like this. But anyway, let's move on to much more important things. Uh, Venezuela. G'day, Helen Woolley. How are you? Um, Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, uh, Helen, you have got had a long-term uh, uh, support relationship with uh, Venezuela. Can you explain how uh, Australian uh, members of the uh, group that you're part of have been supporting uh, uh, Venezuela? Sure. I'm a member of the Venezuela Solidarity Campaign here in Melbourne, Um Personally, I've only been involved in the last three years that I've been in Melbourne, um, but the campaign has been running for oh, 10 years or so. Um, but we were um, primarily focused on raising awareness about what's happening in Venezuela, and uh, we do a bit of fundraising for some some rural communities in Venezuela um, <laughs> through the Comuna movement, uh, which is, of course, um, com- you know, it stands for... Um, communals, uh, and they run their communities based on participatory d- democracy. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting because uh, what's happening in Venezuela, if we were to believe uh, any of the reports coming out of uh, Murdoch Media and other sources, almost all sources, other than places like 3CR and your organisation, uh, you would believe that uh, Venezuela um Government is the devil incarnate, and uh, this is far from the truth, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Venezuela has, uh, in the last 22 years, held 28 elections. In November, on the 21st, this will be their 29th election in, in 22 years. So, you know, if if we talk about democracy and if we talk about elections, representing democracy, then that country, Venezuela, has had its fair share of elections. The, how is it faring at the moment? Now, I know that uh, when you talk about elections, it's, it's a much more um, complicated set of uh, parameters than we have here. Their democracy is far more thorough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They call it participatory document democracy. So that means that it's from the grassroots level uh, right to the top, there's there's an election process that takes place. To give an example, the recent elections, um, there these are um, there's uh, five thousand people that need to be elected. They're mayors, they're um, regional state councillors, they're, you know, I, I don't know the exact terms, in ter- uh, you know, in Venezuela, but that's kind of who they represent. So candidates for local council, mayors, um, state state regional um, presidents and so on. So 5,000 candidates need to be elected. And for, the, for these elections, there were 65,000 candidates just for the PSUV that wanted to be elected. So they had to go through a process of being... Um, uh, officially elected by the people. Uh, they had to front up to their communities and put forward why they should be the candidates. And, uh, you know, eventually it's come down to to a number of, of candidates that will be elected. But but to think that it's 65,000 people actually wanted to be um, elected, wanted to be representative of, of their communities. Well, what's the population of Venezuela? 
I'm sorry, I should know, but I don't. Uh, neither do I. Um, uh, oh, it's okay. It's, it just gives us a comparat- comparison. I mean, you're right. It is a pretty staggering amount of people who are involving themselves in the political process. So, I mean, quite clearly... Because uh, in the past, before Chavez, uh, the distribution of wealth was in a far more sort of uh, uh, straightforward hierarchical arrangement, wasn't it? Where uh, the general population were were uh, less well resourced than they should be. I think it would be. I think it would be fair to say prior to prior to Chavez, there you know the elections were. Um, uh, fairly similar to what we have here, representative democracy. And, uh, you know, that means going to the elections every every four years and, re- you know, electing somebody that we think is going to represent us and, you know, ultimately doesn't really represent us at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, so, uh, I mean, just as a matter of uh, interest... The Americans have been applying inordinate pressure and uh, over time uh, other uh, parts of the international uh, financial community and banking etc. has made it incredibly difficult for the Venezuelan government to actually uh, continue doing uh, to govern. You know, uh, in terms of inflation is very high. Uh, a, a whole range of things have been going, manipulated around the Venezuelan economy to try and oust this representative democracy, correct? Correct, correct, yeah. The, the, the sanctions, um, are, you know, they're really actually what we call economic coercive measures. Um, and and they uh, these sanctions are harsh, they're extremely harsh. And because the United States controls the, the international finance world, it, it makes even financial tra- transactions through... Through the banking system, whether you, whether you, you know, whether you use, no matter what system you use, it's got to go through the United States banking system, and so they they can track every single um, finance transaction that's going on, and so it makes it particularly hard for countries like Venezuela that are fighting for independence, fighting for their own way of. Um, uh, you know, independent and foreign and independent foreign policies, and and uh, you know these participatory democracies to survive. It makes it very difficult for them to to do trade. And of course, that's what's happened with Alex Saab. He's had to had to to go over to uh, Iran. Uh, he was an you know he was a diplomat, or he is a diplomat, and um, he he was on his way to Iran to secure food and and medicine. Uh, was kidnapped off a plane and um, has now been extradited to the United States and faces money laundering charges, which, of course, are trumped-up charges and so on. So, so, you know, these things are continually occurring that makes it really difficult for the Venezuelan government to um, to look after its people. But having said that, the people themselves, through their participatory democracy, through their grassroots movement, they are achieving amazing things on the ground for themselves. So they, you know, even though the United States would love to crush what's occurring in Venezuela through these harsh sanctions, it's actually, it's, it's not occurring. Uh, and the will of the people is for, to support the government is um, as strong as ever. And I think that's what these 21st uh, of November elections are going to show.
um, most definitely that the PSUV is the most popular party um, or organisation in Venezuela, and they'll be re-elected again. So, so really, uh, this uh, reaction is re- around creating a sustainable future as well as self-determination. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and there is no way that the Venezuelan people will uh, give up what they've achieved over the last 20 years uh, just because they might be um, uh, going a little bit hungry or, or they might be, you know, face extreme um, measures that uh, that we, we 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 wouldn't even sort of be be able to understand. We I went to Venezuela two two years ago, and we went out to the rural areas, and they couldn't get things like water pumps. They can, they can't get things to fix um, machines that are broken down. They can't get fertilizers so that they can incre- increase their crop yield. Um, but having said that, again, that they are finding ways to get around that. Mm, it's quite fascinating. It's quite obsessive on the part of the Americans, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 not just the Venezuelans, of course. They do it to Cuba, and they do it to anybody who wrong steps them. In a sense, I mean, uh, we lost the government here to to their fanaticism. Uh, so, um, what is, in particular is the problem for the United States with Venezuela? Can you? I mean, I know that's a big question, but. What's your view? I find that it's uh, the same as um, the same as Cuba, as you know, uh, and the same as um, uh, you know, virtually any country that's striving for independence. But I think you'll find with Venezuela that it's, it's the fact that it's right on their back doorstep, and they do consider through the Monroe Doctrine, you know, um, uh, that they formulated many years ago after World War Two um, that. That, that Venezuela is uh, sorry that Latin America is their backyard, and that um, uh, they will be the ones that set uh, the foreign policies and, and the um, the regimes for these countries. Uh, they will take all. They will have access to all of those that mineral wealth in, the, in that um, in that area, uh, and they will have control of uh, all of that wealth. And, and I think that's that's the key to it. Of course, is, is profit. I don't think. The Venezuela, you know, the United States government doesn't really care who who is in power if they have direct access to that control, uh, and it's it's always about profits being in command, and that's that's what the United States is is um, dogmatically sticking to. So any country that steps outside of that um, dogma, uh, they will be they will be crushed. By the United States, and we saw that with uh, Chile in you know in the 1970s. Allende was a popular government that was elected, um, popular leader that was elected, socialist leader, and um, uh, and uh, a military coup was organised against them by the United States, and they installed a military dictator. And you know, without the you know the, the difference with Venezuela, of course, is that the military came on side with with Chavez in, in 1990s and and, um, and as a result, a coup could not be organised, although they tried it. Although they tried yeah. it and they, they arrested uh, Chavez and put him in jail. Um, but, you know, through popular demand, he was released. Um, and, it, it's and, actually yeah, quite fascinating, Helen, uh, the... Um the fact that uh, we're watching the copybook uh, approach of the Americans for uh, regime changes, they like—I mean, it's even a term—and um, 
uh, failing, failing, failing on a continuous basis in Venezuela, embarrassingly so, which is interesting. That's why they're bringing out the heavy guns. But you said uh, that the Monroe Doctrine goes much uh, earlier than um, after the Second World War. I mean, it's a 18th century uh, uh, conception. Uh, Monroe was, uh, you know, his... Uh, they came up with this idea that they had a right to um, the resources of uh, all the other countries nearby them very early on in their uh, development, the Americans. So they are quite uh, happy with the uh, Western uh, construction of uh, colonialism. Yes, I stand corrected, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're in love with it. Uh, and they like to normalise it. But, uh, of course, it's uh, it's about the bread and butter and the real lives and the real futures of people at ben in Venezuela. And I was fascinated to find out that you and John uh, Montero are going to go over there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm going to leave um, uh, probably around about uh, 17th or 18th of um, November to um, to observe the election process. Uh, and so that's going to be that's going to be great, uh, and we'll be able to come back and, and explain how this process um, has been achieved, what how they do it. Um, I know that Jimmy Carter went to um, uh, some election quite a few years ago, and he he went back and reported that the Venezuelan elections are um, one of the best that he's ever seen in terms of transparency uh, and um, you know fairness. Uh, so that's going to be fascinating to see. And also in terms of the, the way they run it, the efficiency uh, of, of those elections. So that's going to be fascinating to see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were you invited? Uh, yeah, by, by, the Venez by the embassy here in, um, in, in uh, Canberra, by the Venezuelan embassy, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a, a special privilege, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're going to be a scrutineer. So to speak, yeah. Yeah, 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 fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So, when will you be back, Helen? Uh, well, it, it will it will be the following week. So, I hope to be back by the twenty fifth of November, if not earlier. Yeah. Oh, yep. that's a, um, a flash visit. Absolutely, uh, and and a horrendous flight. You know, fifty hours there, sort of, and fifty <laughs> hours back. So, <laughs> a jet, jet lag will be going on. Oh, you're a mighty woman. You're a mighty woman. Okay, well, we'll catch you when you get back and we'll uh, ho uh, hope nothing but success for you yeah. and Venezuela. Yeah, and um, uh, the population of uh, Venezuela is, is 28, 28 million for, for anybody that's interested. So, it's um, you know, it's very similar to Australia, but, of course, it's a much smaller, um, much smaller um, area uh, than Australia. Um, uh, so 28 million uh, in, a, in a small small country. Um, Certainly, yeah, fight, fighting above its weight. Absolutely, punching well, well, well above its weight for the for the for an example for the rest of the world. And I think that's the the crucial thing for for what we do in the Venezuelan Solidarity Campaign is to try and show that there's there's a there's a way forward um, out of the uh, undemocratic system that we live in. The 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 you know from a grassroots level to to a high level, there's there's processes that we can go through to to um, to live in a better world and to live in a, in a more just society, and that's that's the message that we'll be bringing home as well. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. It's a crazy idea to think that uh, people having uh, life work, work-life balance is a radical idea. But, of course, that's the world we live in. And uh, now we're talking to somebody from the uh, – we're going to talk to Matt Kunkel from the Migrant Workers Centre. And, of course, the fantasy of having uh, a base rate for employment for a lot of migrant workers who are working in the uh, horticultural industry was a myth. G'day, Matt. Uh, there was a big change coming out of – or a message coming out of the uh, – so, um, the Fair Work Commission, or I mean, I always stumble on that, the Unfair Work Commission. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they did something quite interesting uh, in response to an application by the Australian Workers' Union recently. Uh, uh, do you want to explain to my listeners what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, Annie. Thanks for having me on, and morning to all the listeners. Um, so this week, the Fair Work Commission made a decision that they would alter the horticulture award, which sets the minimum wage and conditions of workers who pick our fruit and veggies. And um, what they've said is that for those workers who are engaged on peace rates, where, you know, a certain amount of money per bin of fruit or, um, you know, a certain amount of money for how many different um, trees you might be pruning for something like that, um, that even if you set... Even if you're on a peace rate, you'll be guaranteed to take home the minimum wage uh, for all of the hours that you've worked, which is a really huge shift um, for the workers and a huge victory for the workers in the industry. Yeah, well, uh, I've been sorting through it and uh, the peace uh, rate uh, is... um I mean, if you look at it, it, it was this is what it says: a full time and part time. This is what they wanted to have. Uh, that that clause provided that the peace work rate fixed by agreement must enable the average competent employee to earn at least fifteen percent more per hour than the minimum hourly wage. The problem was that even the Fair Work Commission could tell that uh, peace work rates are set unilaterally by the grower and presented to the employer on a take-it-or-leave basis rather than being the product of any genuine negotiation between employer and employee. And this is one of the things that uh, your centre, the Migrant Workers Centre, in particular has a very strong awareness of amongst your members, isn't it so? 
Yeah, Annie, so I guess that we've known that the peace rate system's been broken for a very long time and earlier this year we released a report to coincide with the um, the hearings around this uh, this case that showed that some workers were earning as little as $9 a day and that almost 80% of workers that we surveyed, and we surveyed over 1,300 of them, that um, they were being paid less than the, the minimum wage uh, when they were working on these peace rate systems. And what we see here is there's a number of kind of issues that make this an impossible situation for particularly migrant workers, where um, working holiday makers have to go out into the country to work 88 days on a farm if they want to extend their visa and stay in the country a little bit longer. So, you know, so we found people working for as little as $9 a day. Uh, we saw that there, this was coupled with other abuses like, you know, accommodation scams or violence and harassment in the workplace. Um, but what we know is that the, it's, the, the farmers have been setting these rates, as the Commission found, unilaterally on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. And they've been setting them so low um, that, you know, people couldn't possibly make up the minimum wage, which led to them working extremely long hours in the sun, in the cold, just to try and make enough to live. And peace, peace rates itself won't disappear under this decision. So, you know, it was obvious it, peace rates are in a number of different awards, not just the horticulture award. Um, but peace rates are there to try and incentivise people. Um, and if you pick more, you get more. And there are going to be people that will continue to get much higher than the minimum wage. But this case showed not just the union's evidence, but um, also the farmers' evidence that they put on themselves showed that the majority of people that are working under these um, conditions, under these peace rate agreements, um, were, were just not able to get the minimum wage. Uh, and that is what I think led to the, the Commission making a, a huge a huge decision to... Um, well, we shouldn't, I guess. Well, it's no, a huge you... victory for workers, but really what we're talking about is a guaranteed minimum wage, which... Yeah. In 2021, um, it's shocking that we're um, that we're still having to fight for something like that. Well, it's interesting. There's a whole lot of things I want to ask you about this because uh, this decision or this move by the Australian Workers Union, uh, supported by the UWU and mm-hmm. a variety of uh, governments around Australia, state governments around Australia. Uh, yep is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the struggle that has been going on. Uh, and, I mean, I've been aware of the UWU, uh, ca- gra- real grassroots campaign that are bringing the, to the surface uh, very brave workers I- and uh, attempting to get people in, from particular language groups involved in fighting back uh, against these abuses. Yeah, I mean, look, there's been a definite revitalisation of organising in the in the farm sector, and you know, we've seen that being coupled with workers standing up and telling their stories, and some pretty horrific ones, um, particularly in the media, going back to the um, the slaving away um, story on Four Corners many years ago. But I mean, this is this is definitely we're overdue for action. Um, we've seen countless reports, we've seen countless news stories. We've seen workers standing up and demanding better, um, but this change that would institute a minimum wage in the farms is a really great step. But it's really, you know, we never, we can't ever hope to hold on to something that we win in a court 
unless we're organised together to, to defend it um, in our shops or in our factories or, in this case, on our farms. Because our report as well showed that 61% of people that worked in the, in the farm sector that were paid hourly wages um, were actually underpaid as well. So while this is a really, really massive step, and I don't want to downplay it because it's a huge shift, the only solution to raising wages, to making better jobs, is for workers to join in unions, to fight together uh, and, and address the imbalance that they have in the workplace against their boss. Well, because you're saying it's one step, and this is what I, one of the things I want to get to, you can't take your hand off the throttle, can you? Because uh, you're now, from the Migrant Workers Centre, is pushing the now for there to be legislation passing to actually uh, place a, um, a, a, a seal on this judgment because it's not it, I mean there's there can still be there's still a sort of a, an appeals process uh, uh, that yeah. can be brought against this judgment yeah well we, it's slightly different to that I guess Annie I mean we're looking for the federal government to come out and support this decision and, and send a message to farmers and to their um, and to their employer association the farmers Federation um, to not appeal this decision but to respect it Um because the Farmers Federation has been frothing at the mouth. I mean, they're, they're saying that the sky is going to fall in, um, that, you know, this is the end of peace rates and, you know, this will push farmers to the wall. But, um, I mean, what we're talking about here is abolishing... Um, Slavery. Not abolishing, yeah, we're, we're, we're really <laughs> talking about running out these bad, um, these bad operators that have been using this particular scheme to push wages down. What we're also saying is, as you said, Annie, I mean, we need to keep the pressure on. We need to keep um, things moving ahead. This is, again, a huge mammoth shift in the way that um, industrial relations on farms will um, will operate. But we still need... There's a couple of things in front of the parliament at the moment. Um, a lot of people kind of say it, you know, like the Orwellian named, but the bill that the government has put forward, the Protecting Migrants Bill, is actually perversely going to have the opposite effect um, to what it intends um, by making it quite precarious and, and quite um, dangerous for people in migrant workers to actually report industrial abuses because it could see them reset the clock on their permanent pathway. Um, we need to do, if, you know, if we want to fix this sector, we need to do a couple of things. We need to make sure that there's a pathway to permanent residency for those workers that want it. And we really need to see um, more powers given to unions to organise in the sector, um, to get together and to really, you know, collectively bargain and make, um, you know, make that a farm, a farm sector that's fair for workers uh, and, you know, drive out this, this exploitation that we, we, we see all over the place. Well, it, actually, it was quite fascinating during the COVID period when uh, there was a lot of... Uh, Murdoch media around uh, the loss of crops and not enough workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the pushback was that um, uh, they refused to pay people properly and to treat them with any respect, and so it was, yeah. and that it was really difficult for local workers to actually get jobs in these place, spaces. Well, I mean, Annie, the the government and farmers have done everything to try and attract people to these jobs except pay people more yeah. to them. <laughs> um, and, you know, what we now see as well is, you know, this mad rush to, you know, try and fill the labour supply issues. But 
not addressing that what's at the very core of it, which is these jobs are really difficult jobs. They're jobs um, that only last a little while. Um, so you've got to move from place to place. Um, and, you know, we need to find a way of stabilising um, the, the paying conditions, improving the paying conditions so that people can actually afford to go and work on these in these jobs so that migrant workers that come here and that are in some in many ways almost required to go through this period of work on farms if they want to extend their visas, that those people are going to be respected, that they're going to have decent jobs. And rather than just kind of working for their working for their right to stay in the country another year, they're actually taking home a fair day's pay uh, for, for a fair day's work. So... Um, there's a lot more that still needs to be done here. And as I said before, the only thing that's going to, to make sure we both kind of really realise the victory from this decision in the, um, in the Commission is if workers are coming together in union to, um, to demand better in the, in the sector. It's, it's interesting to me, the, uh, the, uh, this is a sort of a, a left-of-field thing, but uh, the basic... Uh, uh, bullying and uh, pervasive uh, exploitative relationship between uh, the workers that exposed by this uh, um, area of work is exactly the same kind of hideous uh, bullying that comes out of the uh, issues around um, uh, sexual harassment uh, uh, and uh, the relate domestic violence that we is endemic in this country. Uh, it's it's an attitudinal thing, and the uh, business about precarity at, uh, and the intersection of both industrial and migration law is an example of this. People not being able to say that this is a really criminally uh, abusive uh, employment relationship. Uh, because uh, they're frightened of being deported. Yeah, there's a huge. That's a huge issue, Annie. I mean, that's why we say that one of the most important things that we can do to support um, all the migrant workers, not just on farms, but across the country, is to improve the visa system, to improve the migration system. We rely in this country and have become um, employers have become addicted to this temporary temporary migration scheme. Um, because it allows them to add a new level of precarity on top of you know the casual casual precarity. If you know you're a casual and your visa might um, and, and I and I control your visa um, and I can, if I control your visa, I might control how long you get to stay in the country. So um, we do really see some controlling behaviour from some very bad employers, and, and one way we can fix that is by making sure um, that those who want to stay. Because we know that many of the um, many of the almost two million temporary migrants in this country want to stay, but they have no option, or they have very few options to actually stay without continuing to stay in very difficult situations where they're being paid less than the minimum wage, being treated horribly. Um, it's important to say here that it's the employers that are you know hungry to keep this because. They're the ones that are benefiting um, the most out of out of these exploitative conditions. Um, the other thing, Annie, is that you know the work that we do with migrant workers, you know, educating and kind of going out and telling people about what their rights are. Everyone that we speak to, when you when you tell them, you know, this is the minimum wage, and you know, this is superannuation, 
there's no one, not one single person that, that's out there that we've spoken to that said, oh, well, I'm, I'm kind of happy earning five <laughs> or $10 an hour. You know what I mean? So, I mean, there's, there's this idea, I mean, and a, and a wrong idea that, you know, migrants are, you know, the migrants are scapegoated for, for some of the issues that, um, that workers face in this country. But it's the bosses that are the ones that are driving the wages down. Um, it's the government that's, uh, it's the federal government that's supporting them in that endeavour by refusing to to make changes to the industrial relations system and their continued attacks on unions. And um, it's it's a really thing that um, for all of you listeners out there, you know, to join a union <laughs> if you're in the in the workplace, or if you're not in the in the workplace, there's you know the unemployed workers union as well. But if you if join a union stand together with other workers, no matter where they're from, um, because ultimately that's the only way that we're going to turn this around and make sure that we've got decent living standards for everybody. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Matt. No worries. Thanks, Annie.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. A week solidarity brekkie team listener when big supremo scuttled them more latch son, a.k.a. Scummo, returned from his highly successful trip to Roma and Glasgow, where his plan, 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 the true blue Aussie way, true blue Aussie way, true blue Aussie way, technology not taxes, technology not taxes, went down like several million tonnes of coal. And the French supremo confirmed his knowledge. I don't think... I know, arousing Scuttlebeam's innate love of country as he defended us all against this slur francaise, telling us he is big enough to withstand the fact that he is a liar, sorry, accused of being a liar, but Troublewazi is not big enough. He will not have these attacks on Troublewazi and Troublewazi people go undefended as he sprang to our common defence. Uh, but Emmanuel Toscomo praised Troublewazi and the Troublewazi people other than just one Troublewazi person whom he said was an untrustworthy liar. And I will defend Troublewazi and Troublewazis against this outrageous attack on all of us. I am big enough, but the country isn't. Uh, but as I said, it wasn't on all of us, it was just on, on one of us, Scummo. I hope you're not suggesting I would use my country to divert attention from this personal attack, which I am big enough and broad-shouldered enough to bear. It is disingenuous of the French sore losers to suggest an attack on the big supremo is not an attack on all true blue Aussies. Scummo received welcome support from U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Joe Biden Capital, who told a man you held to he had been led to believe the French were being kept informed that they were about to be ratted on, leaving Scummo to pick himself up from under a Roman bus. But here I think Scummo may have been telling the truth, as he retorted that he had told Joe everything he had told a man you held to, and as it appears he told a man you held to nothing, then let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he might have been telling a lie, or might not have been telling a lie, sorry. And although he never shuts his mouth, it's also in his favour that we know he constantly has nothing to say. Then he released, well leaked, private texts between Emmanuel Held to and himself, which should guarantee other Supremos are open and honest in their communications with him, as open and honest as he has been with Emmanuel Held to. Imagine the dilemma faced by our Pacific neighbours tossing up who to support. A neighbour who is intent on dispatching them into the briny, or a colonial fossil which brought them the delights of nuclear bombs and nuclear waste. Tough one. What's that wailing sound drifting across the pollution? It seems to be saying a pox on both their houses. Oh. There is a kind of relationship between the slur Francais and Scuttlebim. I don't think I know from the former and the latter I know I don't think. Scuttlebim told the world it could reach zero emissions by 2050 without doing anything. Just go on frying the planet to our heart's content and wait for technology, not taxes. Technology, not taxes, to find the solutions. Reminds me of the commentator who mused that the bloke who chopped down the last tree on Easter Island would have said the same thing. Technology will save the day. The conference did adopt a global methane pledge, obviously misinterpreted by Scuttlebim, who boasted he had pledged to increase global methane. 
May the gas keep bubbling, the coal keep burning, the cattle keep burping. He expressed our commitment. The refusal to cut massive methane pollution provided a major opportunity for the Socialist Party to attack the government fossils. Except, Anthony, we are Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony all being Uzi, this is a great opportunity for you to expose the government's refusal to slash climate change pollution. Uh, I'm too smart to fall for your trick questions. No, this is a great opportunity to show that we will not make ourselves an easy target for the government. This government and Socialist Party policy strikes a sensible balance between mining and resource interests and pastoral interests. And uh, the environment? What what about the environmental interests? Of course, uh, we feel it will improve the political environment. Uh, so, so what will your policy differences be? Well, that is clear, and I have been making that difference clear. His policy, a disaster for true blue Aussie, is to remain big supremo. And my policy, a great policy for true blue Aussie, is to become big supremo. Uh, anything else? Uh, what else is there? Glasgow has also seen lots of countries support facing out coal, although the biggest polluters, including the US of and China and India and, yes, of course, True Blue Aussie, realise it's much smarter to await the technological solution to materialise, technological mirage in the burning desert. Just a bit of a pity that in the middle of all this, as ungrateful Pacific neighbours complained we were not doing enough to prevent them sinking into the briny amid other climate effects, for goodness sake, what business is it of theirs? Just a pity this information leaked of Trublawazi's contribution in September as the Asian Development Bank debated a ban on investing in new coal-fired generation. Trublawazi's board member, Anthony MacDonald, speaking for all of us, warned it was wishful thinking that coal use would decline. It was unreasonable, he spoke for Scummo and, and, and for all of us, to expect countries to sacrifice their development to meet emissions reductions when coal, gas, large hydro and nuclear comprise so much of energy generation. And as our Pacific, Pacific neighbours still complained, Anthony said it was wrong to assume all coal-fired power generation was high emissions. Apparently, he's streets ahead of us, knowing what's ahead in the technology, not taxes department. Sadly for our national interest, the ban was carried despite Anthony's, despite Trublawazi's, most reasonable arguments. As consumers of fruit and vegetables, let's all get behind this campaign by farmers and growers to keep prices down for all of us. Farmers defending us against lazy, avaricious workers, like Scummo defending us against a calumny against, well, against him personally on all our behalves, or defending us against climate vandals who would have us act before some Martian or man on the moon turns up with the inevitable technology, not taxes solution. You might be sceptical, our big supremo looked frustrated, but we will accept a solution from wherever that solution comes. But food. This national economy destroying decision that fruit and vegetable pickers must receive the minimum wage of $25 an hour. $25 an hour. How can the economy afford that? Well, quite simply, it can't. As Mark King hit the workers... Chair of Dried Fruits Troubler was, he gasped. Shocking! This will cause labour costs to climb. 
and we will all pay as prices increase, showing their concern for all of us. Well, except for the not all of us, lazy, avaricious workers ripping them off. Lazy, avaricious workers who want to send our costs of living soaring or climbing, to quote Mark. And, and I hope no one thinks if $25 is the minimum rate and paying it will send wage costs soaring, does that mean, no, no, surely not, mean workers are being severely underpaid, that Mark and his lot are ripping them off? No, no, as Mark pointed out, paying them wages would mean they wouldn't have an incentive to work harder for the less they now earn, showing how lazy, lazy avaricious workers are. And guest workers brought in primarily from the Pacific, where we're already doing so much for their environment, have lots of costs extracted by their caring labour hire sponsor, little matters like accommodation in a friendly social environment with lots of other workers, travel, water... Still, at the end of the week, there's more often than not a little something left over to put in their pockets. And the government helps them uh, get that little bit by putting up signs warning them of the dire consequences of complaining about their working and living conditions. Deportation. Thankless, thankless, lazy, avaricious workers. In fairness, the super-efficient labour hire caring employers also rip off the farmers. Win-win. Get it coming and going. And talk about selective diversions. The evil union, the AWU, now there's an evil union wherever we saw one, produced an example where a German backpacker received a whopping $3 an hour for a day's work. Now, I'm being cynical there. That isn't a lot. But all I can say is, pull your German finger out. And given the ridiculously high prices people pay for fruit and veggies from the big supermarket duo compared to... Vic Market, for instance, the greed of these workers wanting the minimum wage and making those prices even higher is compounded. Back in Glasgow, Scummo also had an audience, as they call it, with our future His Most Gracious Majesty Big Ears, whose job is Prince. Wonderful to see you again, Scummo said, and we'd be surprised if the feeling was mutual, even allowing for Big Ears' inbred problems. I know you have a great affection for the Pacific, our man said. Absolutely, it's that southern bit of my family's empire, isn't it? Serious and vital political debate, like any Socialist Party poly who as much as looked sideways must resign immediately, has been led by the man even the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin described as the state-caring business class party attack dog, Tim Smite them, who had a few drinks with friends or maybe a couple of wines, or maybe a lot of wines. Well, well, understandably, he can't quite remember the facts. After all, he blew a breathalyzer to smithereens, or is that smithereens? Anyway, Tim is aware that that is nothing compared to a socialist looking sideways as he attack-dogged himself. Does one error mean a career is, <gasps> is, is over forever? No, not in every case, Tim, but... Oh, look, let's give him a little award to ease his pain. Tim, your It Couldn't Happen to a Nicer Award is on its way. Over in the US of footballer Brackett's temporary Jordan to going nowhere has hired the same apparently high-powered lawyer who represented serial sex sleaze Harvey Weinstein. And although Jordan is a reasonably good footballer, albeit I think overrated, I suspect, well his record shows, he's not too talented in the brain department because someone should point out to him Weinstein is doing life. Finally, 
just because poor Jeff Bezos is one of the world's richest, if not the world's richest, doesn't mean lazy, avaricious workers aren't ripping him off. As post-pandemic changes in the workforce have meant, he has to provide the thousands to whose lives he gives meaning day after day, night after night, with that most crippling work practice of all, wages. These selfish workers may prevent Jeff from saving the planet from climate change, if there is such a thing, as his profits plunge to a mere several trillion, and he tries to save us by establishing a mixed-use business park in space to be called Orbital Reef. What a practical, practical, altruistic man, seeing the writing on the wall for planet Earth and saving us by giving us another planet to stuff up. Exposing, like for the poor fruit and veggie growers, the massive problems the sleepless, tossing and turning nights workers pose for their caring employers. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. And uh, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? Uh, g'day, Annie. And um, what a challenge you throw down, because I've got to come in and... Uh it sounds as interesting as what Kevin does. How do I do that? <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> well, that's, that's a nice thing to say. Um, I'm sure... Good day to everyone. I hope all of your listeners are uh, going well, and especially if, if you're in Victoria, that uh, you're building a good and safe way out, coming out of the restrictions. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, people should be aware that uh, despite uh, the mainstream coverage and uh, people's relief uh, about coming out of uh, lockdown... We have had over a thousand cases yesterday and ten deaths. Yes. So it's it's yes. not that it is beholden on people to behave in a a, a um, public health uh, responsible way. Yes, yes. Um, well, Annie, I thought we should talk about two of the things you've already been talking about, but maybe from slightly different angles, and that is the um, Fair Work Commission decision uh, about the Horticultural Board, mm. and then secondly about a couple of important aspects of uh, the struggles that are at a pinpoint at the moment in uh, in Glasgow and in many other parts around uh, parts of the world. Uh, is that... Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds get... great. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been looking up the... Uh, uh, it, it was interesting to me to read the uh, summary of the uh, Fair Work Commission's uh, findings and uh, then looking at its actual uh, decision. Uh, yes. It's interesting how they couch it in uh, the uh, idea that uh, uh, ensuring that there is a base rate of pay... Uh, for agricultural workers will be a productivity gain because it would mean that uh, the farmers uh, would have to actually uh, manage their workers uh, better. <laughs> I thought that was a rather cute way of putting it. Well, first, good on you for reading the summary of the decision. <laughs> uh, a lot of activists who are pontificating their views about what it means especially in Facebook threads, haven't done that. And it might make a difference to the quality of the discussion in our labour movement if they did. And what's more, I think, and this is one of, I think, the um, overarching features of this decision, is that it is about the award, not the enterprise agreement. And therefore, it enables... This I don't know whether it will be a couple of days, a few days or a few weeks 
for labour movement activists to restore a focus on learning about what the significance of the award is and therefore, in this context, the significance of this decision. Oh, that's really interesting because I've been noticing that uh, uh, enterprise agreements is something that came in during the Keating period and um, it was supposedly, I suppose, to sort of change uh, uh, or increase uh, the um, outcomes for workers over the award. Now, the award is the previous uh, established uh, process that uh, w- workers fought for. And now we're in battle, aren't we? The EBA system and the award system are now in battle. Yes, well, the, um, um, uh, that's a bigger discussion which we perhaps should develop further. But, yes, you're right. I mean, the enterprise, the enterprise bargaining system uh, is like a drug and most of the institutional union movement is addicted to it. <laughs> and, so, and so even though it's a failing system, uh, we celebrate, you know, there's fewer agreements being negotiated and the quality of them from the point of view of workers is less. We celebrate each one and then promise that we'll get off the drug and turn to uh, more complete industry bargaining in some form or another. And award, uh, the awards are the most important potential form to replace genuine power-based bargaining for workers uh, instead of this uh, depowering um, addiction to enterprise bargaining. Yeah. So how does that affect this particular, you know, let's go back. This particular, what this decision does is it creates the opportunity for discussion, not just about the particulars of the decision, but about how important an award is and how important the restoration of the dominant status of awards is over the next few years. Uh, and that needs a strategy which we won't have time to go into today. The, the second thing it does is open up discussions about uh, just what are peace rates relative to the hourly rate. Now... Uh, this particular award, the Horticulture Award, and I think most others that um, have a peace rates clause in them, and it always pays to learn the uh, uh, the contents of an award. That's pretty important for labour movement activists, many of whom are good at learning the contents of an enterprise agreement, but it's a bit of a novelty to learn about an award. Um, it's also hard, to too, because an it's, it's an illegal That's document. Yeah, it's a legal document, and it, uh, it's uh, and part of the business about. Uh, so I, I didn't just read the uh, summary; I was working on the draft termination, and it's interesting. Well done. Good. So you went to that part of the decision at the end that provides the draft new language in the award. That's right. That replaces the current. Language. And it's quite it's a, it's quite challenging because if you look at the uh, uh, the change the change that w- the cl- they were 
they were seeking the AWA action uh, sought to vary the clause 15.2 of the horticultural award which deals with peace rates now if you read the existing clause it, you can see that uh, it, it looked as if it wasn't designed to create uh, unfairness in the system for the workers but of course in practicality in practical terms it was uh, it wasn't enforced and so all the the power relations between the employer and the worker uh, outstripped uh, the intention of the clause and the farmers or unscrupulous farmers just bullied workers into incredible low rates. Well done you again because you've read the current award language and you've read the proposed new award language. Now this, there are a couple of points there. Firstly, uh, the new award language is not yet fixed into the award. It's put there in the decision as the draft that the Commission is recommending. And there is now a period, I think, through to the end of November yeah, it's, where um, the parties can dispute or argue yeah, about that's right. the language that the Commission has chosen. So it, it is quite likely that the employers will argue for new language that they will intend to dilute the content of the new entitlement that workers would have in the industry. So the immediate struggle is to defend what has been achieved and ensure that it is indeed fixed into the award with an operating date for as quickly as possible. Keep in mind that uh, the Australian Workers' Union lodged this case, started this case in December last year. They didn't get a fair income hearing until March in front of what is a stacked commission by um, LNP governments. And they've only got this decision, uh, what is it now? It's, oh, it's a uh, year later almost. It's eight, it's eight months. Yeah, yeah, that's it's right. It's taken eight months. And, and, and getting it to this point has been a, an ongoing grassroots campaign, not just by AWU, but the UWU and a whole range of other, uh, I mean, reports coming out of different universities and other think tanks that have been working on this for yes. years. The the yes. the lack of transparency and the uh, um, uh, skullduggery well, that goes on well, in this area is amazing. The really important conclusion from what you're saying is do not fall for the nonsense that some people in the Labor movement will promote is that the Commission is the answer to our problems. <laughs> the Commission itself has been dragged kicking and screaming into making a good decision. It hasn't done so because the Act enables... Uh, uh, a straightforward decision to be made. It's depended upon lots and lots of different forms of campaigning to get to this point so that the evidence and the arguments were so overwhelming that we get quite a positive proposal from the Commission about the language. And I would bet that that language was probably originally drafted in its submissions by the Australian Workers' Union and the United Workers' Union. Keep in mind that the Australian Workers' Union lodged the case in December. 
the first hearing both the Australian Workers Union and the United Workers Union, who both have the rights to organise workers in this industry, were both pursuing this claim. And uh, they will no doubt use their different methods of organising or their common methods of organising and hopefully some united organising to now ensure that, firstly, that the language that's been proposed by the Commission is indeed fixed into the award quickly, there's no delay, and that, secondly, that more and more workers are organised and empowered to make sure they themselves, on the farm sites police the awards so that employers do not dodge it and get away with wage theft. Well, we'll we should uh, move on to the other part of our conversation because I'm I'm the timekeeper. But before we yeah, do... One more, one more sentence uh, on that. Yeah, cool. We must, this is where I'm slightly critical of what Matt Kunkel said. Yeah, we okay. must be very careful about the how we talk about police rates. And in the, the hourly rate is an exploitative rate. Peace rates are an exploitative system. What we have in this result is a reduction in the rate of exploitation. Oh, that's interesting. It's not the defeat of exploitation. Yeah, well put. So let's, interesting. let's go on to... The yeah, other yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Okay, let's move on, because only because I'm a timekeeper and you have only yeah, got well, a limited let's, amount let's, of time. Let's, uh, I think the big thing coming up out of... Glasgow is firstly that at uh, the present time it's blah 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 yeah. to capture Greta Thunberg's memorable summing up of where the dominant managers of the system are in dealing with uh, the reversal of climate heating and uh, uh, at, at the other on the opposite side there are literally thousands probably more of people's organisations, union organisations, or all sorts of people's organisations that are opposing this very, very slow momentum, if there is any, to reverse global heating. And they are doing so in many cases with alternative programs. Some of them are very community-orientated. Some of them are regional and industry-orientated. We have the great work of the Victorian Trades Hall Council when developing uh, industry-orientated just transition programs. There's so many of them. How do we sift out from the point of view of workers and their communities the ones that are really the ones, the principles, the concepts that are really in our interests? Because some just transition programs care very little or not a jot at all about the standard of living of workers during transition. And um, I've written an article about this to try and lay, lay out several principles that any one of us who are, is engaged in the struggle against climate heating and environmental degradation generally, that we can use to evaluate uh, transition programs or Green New Deal programs. The key word is democracy. To what extent is the proposal empowering or based upon and driven by workers and working-class communities? In other words, if they originate from technocratic experts, at what point...
are most profoundly affected take over the management and leadership of the transition plan. Uh, so there are some other principles involved. All right, you, you have to give me a link to this particular article so I can put it on our podcast podcast page, okay? Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but I can send it. I can send it to you. Okay, you can't just throw yeah. that into the ether yeah, without giving the, us a link. Okay, it's at the uh, Carmichael Centre website. Okay, um, uh, for anyone who's interested. The second aspect of this is, I think, um, it is about the big picture and all the talk about um, the finance that would be available to drive the transition from fossil fuels, the fossil fueled economies to renewable economies. Now, the in 2009, in all of the discussions at the time, the 32 richest nations that make up the OECD that is led these days by guess who? Who? Matthias Korn. Yeah, that's what I thought I was going to remember say. Remember all that? Yeah, I do. I do remember. So the OECD, this is why this is the, they've been playing chess for a while. These guys. Yeah. So the they they promised in two thousand and nine that a hundred billion dollars a year in climate finance to poorer countries, hmm. and that formed the basis of the two thousand and fifteen Paris Climate Accord, which aimed to get global warming below two degrees, pushing towards yeah, yeah. one point five. Who stole the money? Uh, well, they missed their target in 2020, and they don't think they'll even get close to it until next year or the year after. Now, then it gets interesting. The 32 countries, there are only three countries that were on target in making sure that their climate finance support to the less developed nations uh, were Norway, Sweden and Germany. Of the 32 countries who failed, oh, sorry, the, the, the 29 other countries who failed to meet their responsibilities and promises, the United States was the worst. Mm. Mm-hmm. Guess who was the fourth worst? Us. Us. Then we go on and we might finish it around this point. Who are the others? The ones that in between? In between, you've got France, <laughs> who, who was close to it, and then above us, New Zealand is next. New Zealand was the fifth worst. We were the fourth worst. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and so it goes on. Yeah, cool. Um, in between, you know, all sorts of countries that are a part of the developed countries, 32 organisations that make up the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Mm-hmm. Then we get to the interesting part from an Australian point of view, and that is the, the complete failure of employers especially during the period of Liberal and National Party governments to invest productively in the new technologies that Morrison says is the way to go. <laughs> Kel Supreme. Now, the way to understand it, productive investment is essentially uh, the buildings and structures, mm. machinery and equipment that is going to drive, that is going to be the technology, if you like, that workers who are paid to use it uh, to produce the goods and services that will be renewable in character, right? that productive investment in manufacturing in particular, and that's the critical one, has been declining 
longer term trend of decline, but it has been declining particularly since the last financial downturn, economic downturn, and supervised in declining by LNP governments. God, they're so full of shit, aren't they? Now, when you look at... That's the raw numbers. When you look at the record, how much they have been willing to spend... You see, that sort of productive investment comes out of profits. Yeah, yeah. All right, so if we do know that the overwhelming general trend in profits is upwards, therefore the, the available the volume of available profit to spend on productive investment mm. is actually higher. But the portion has been going down in Australia. Supervised, as I say, in its role as the government by Liberal National Party governments. So basically business taking, making a free, taking a free ride. You know, it, it's it's yeah, they're free rides. I would I would call call it corporate bludging. Bludging, yeah, and, and this is also reflected in the uh, continual, uh, very low investment in uh, uh, development. You know, resources and R and D, right? Yes. Now this brings us back to perhaps my final point, and in uh, a terrific tutorial uh, run by the Life Campaign last week if I may be so bold as to say, Colin Long made a, from the Victorian Trades Law Council made a critical point that when it comes to the investment decision, that is actually workers' business, union business, community business. But the, the Fair Work Act prohibits, on a, in a legal sense, the capacity of workers and their unions to make it their business. Yep. So there is a link between workers' rights. We come to the, democ- the democratic just transition. Democratic just transition must include that workers assert their right defiantly to argue with their employer about how much of their profit they are investing to reverse global heating. Yeah, and that yeah. can be done at, a, at, at an enterprise level, uh, at a workplace level. Oh, this is a fascinating level. end to this conversation. This opens such a can of worms. Fantastic stuff. All talking about these things. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite uh, extraordinary, isn't it? It, it? Basically, they have to open their books. But this goes straight to the um, heart of the system that we're in. It's interesting you should mention this because I listened to a... Oh, well, anyway, that's well, another conversation. The, we really have to finish. The, the big picture issue for us is that we must mobilise in every possible way to defeat this government and replace it. Now, what should be the replacement? My view is that the best possible result in the circumstances we're in is a Labor government dependent upon Greens' support and with a growing mass movement which has many democratic just transition programs keeping the pressure on to make sure that that new government respects the word transition. In other words... In other words, that what it does, what that new 
Labor Green government does is transitionary. There is no end point. <laughs> what, permanent revolution? To transition to the next transition. Yeah, yeah, permanent revolution. <laughs> that's, the biggest, that's, that's the biggest big picture thing that we should all be working towards in the Australian circumstances. Okay, Don, we have to go. It's We've got three minutes. We're up to the wire. Thanks for joining us this morning. Loved, lovely to be with you again and all the very best. Gather around people, I got something to say Some folks might think it's just another cliche But where there's blood on our hands, we got blood in the streets We gotta get together, start singing for peace I know sometimes that it might hurt We gotta take a stand, throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works Throw a spanner in the works, my friends well, I've seen it all so many times before Rich man, he comes knocking at your door Fooled you into thinking you could own a house Now he's telling your family that they gotta move out You're paying last week's bills with next week's wages Don't be waiting around for no profits or saviors Cause the church owns most the land in this world But there's still plenty of homeless boys and girls Well, I know So on and on and on with the ghosts, my friends But the wind still blows and the creeks haven't flowed till the end And where we're headed, where ain't nobody knows, my friends But the tides are washing and they'll wash it all away again Come too far from the days of the cave Now we're all just walking, talking Multinational slaves And they charge us too much They pay us not enough it's Getting to where it's going And the going will be tough And they smash the unions And the public schools This country's run by bigots And bludgers and fools The squeeze on the poor's getting tighter One man's terrorist Is another's freedom fighter I know Well, I know sometimes it might seem hard, but if we don't learn from history when we won't get far, you gotta stand up to the devil and live a new You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.